Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 51, March 7th to March 13th, 1862. Last week, we spent the episode hanging out in Missouri, fighting the siege of Island Number 10, which is pretty key because it is going to lose more ground on the Mississippi River for the Confederacy and, and gain more, obviously, for the Union. Now, before we do that, I know we've just turned over to March here, but I do want to talk a little bit about the Patreon content that's coming out here. I'm doing something a little bit different, um, taking some pictures from the modern-day battlefield of Pea Ridge, since that's what we're going to be talking about today and uh, going through them in a slideshow. So um, get to see some of the places that we're going to be talking about here in this episode. And hopefully you find that enjoyable. Uh, and try not to make it like a uh, take a look at my vacation kind of thing. But um, uh, for sure, I have some pictures that uh, I have taken at actually at two separate points. Uh, so should be a good time. So make sure to check out the Patreon feed if that sounds like something that would interest you. Now we set up the beginnings of this campaign two weeks ago, so now we can bring it home this episode. When we last left off in Arkansas, the Confederate forces had retreated into the Boston Mountains south of Fayetteville. General Samuel Curtis had paused his advance to take up a defensive position. His supply lines were stretched, and if you recall from our setup, he was actually outnumbered by the Army of the West. Calls back to Halleck for reinforcement and resupply so that the campaign could continue went unheeded. It would be his Army of the Southwest standing alone against whatever Van Dorn decided to throw his way. Van Dorn was not one to sit idle. His lofty goal of the capture of St. Louis, he felt, could be achieved. Now, Van Dorn was plagued during this campaign by several things, including sickness. While being ferried during his rapid move to link up with the rebel forces in the western part of the state, he had fallen into cold water. Despite the prudent course being to get dry, the general pushed on, making part of the journey in an ambulance. Van Dorn would also be hampered by his army not having a proper Pioneer Corps. If you are a Patreon member, perhaps you recall John O. Castler being part of a Pioneer unit to do important things like, say, build bridges or clear obstructions from the roads. This is going to play a big role as Pea Ridge will unfold. Confederate forces would go on the offensive. Earl Van Dorn would call from reinforcements in the unlikely place of Albert Pike and the allied Cherokee, Chickasaws, and Choctaws. A small-sized brigade of around 900 would join the Army of the West in time for the battle. From their base in the Boston Mountains, he would unleash his army and move to take Bentonville, to the surprise of the Union forces, 
who were spread out in the region. Curtis had spread out his men in an effort to hopefully uh, forage and, and alleviate some of his supply issues. Curtis would be informed by a Unionist, as well as a deserter, that the Army of the Southwest was on the move. Legend says that one of these individuals was actually Wild Bill Hickok, but this is almost certainly not true. Still, it's a pretty good story. Skirmishing between cavalry would confirm the fact that the Southerners were flipping the script on Curtis. Federals would withdraw to a good position on Little Sugar Creek. One unit of men under Vanderveer actually marched 42 miles in 16 hours, which was one of the most impressive marches of the war in order to get into position with Curtis. Showing sort of the difficulty of Franz Siegel as a subordinate, Curtis would order the German general to withdraw his troops to consolidate at that point. Siegel would send two of his brigades under Asbeth and Osterhaus on the road, but for unknown reasons, stay behind with the rear guard. It is likely that perhaps he was not concerned with the reported rebel moves, thinking them inaccurate. Men remaining with him in Bentonville would burn whatever fuel they could to keep warm while Siegel ate a large breakfast. It would be at that point that cavalry under James McIntosh would arrive. Now you remember McIntosh from Wilson's Creek, hopefully. Just recall that he is a very headstrong, eager-for-action kind of commander. If he had a cooler head, he may have been able to set up a trap for Siegel and the rearguard, one that would leave little option but potential surrender. McIntosh rushed his forces in a chase of Siegel, who conducts a fighting retreat away from Bentonville. At one point, artillery pieces opened up on Texas cavalry, with McIntosh trying to urge the men on in vain. This skirmish would see ten of the troopers killed. Siegel, for all of his thoughts, was able to get away from the Confederate cavalry and make it back to the friendly lines. I have seen it said that this fighting retreat was one of his finer moments during the war. Now, Van Dorn had some choices to make. He would call a council in the evening of March 6th to figure out what the best course of action would be. A straight frontal assault was out of the question. The Union position on Sugar Creek was strong and on higher ground. Ben McCullough had actually made his headquarters not far from where they were earlier in 1861 and knew the area. There was a detour road that could be used to flank the Union Army and come around to the rear of their position. Van Dorn wanted to give this route a try that very evening. If you remember, Van Dorn had served as a cavalry officer and spent most of his military career on the Great Plains. Fast-moving operations were the name of the game there. It was a hard lesson to learn that infantry was not quite the same as cavalry. McCullough argued that the men needed rest, and they could launch whatever move they wanted to make in the morning. Price would actually agree with his internal rival, a rarity, but Van Dorn would wish to make this move. 
Ironically, the cavalry would not lead the move, stuck behind the already formed infantry and artillery. Iowa General Grenville Dodge had placed obstructions on the detour road, a move that would prove vital for the battle. As earlier mentioned, Confederates did not have a designated pioneer unit, so the clearing of these blocks would take time and alert the Union forces that something was afoot. Confederate stragglers would fall out in need of rest, whittling away at the numerical superiority. Still, the Confederates found themselves successfully in the rear of the enemy. Van Dorn would divide his forces again. McCullough and his men would move directly down the Telegraph Road toward a small hamlet called Lee Town. Price, accompanied by the army commander, would move around high ground known as Big Mountain and come in behind the left flank of the Union at a place called Elkhorn Tavern. Both sections would be ready on March 7th for a crushing blow on the Union rear. The Union army was not necessarily idle during this time. It was apparent to Curtis that something was happening with the Confederate army, although he didn't know exactly what. It was unknown to him that the entire force was now in his rear, threatening his baggage train. Curtis would send Peter Osterhaus with a task force of men on a sort of reconnaissance-slash-counterstrike north to see what the rebels were doing on the Bentonville Detour Road. The provost marshal of the army was reporting enemy movement. It would be noted that Grenville Dodge, the officer who had first alerted Curtis to the Confederate moves, had his men ready to go at the headquarters of the commanding officer. Curtis would instruct Carr to take his subordinate and move toward Elkhorn Tavern. This is where the division of the Confederate forces comes into play. McCullough was moving his men in an effort to link up with Van Dorn and Price. He was not prepared for a fight. Osterhaus moved north of Leetown and would be shocked to see the large group of Confederate cavalry and infantry. He had actually found the end of the column. Remember, the cavalry was bringing up the rear. Artillery and cavalry would move forward under Colonel Bussey and open up on the enemy horsemen, killing nearly 10 men. McCullough would order McIntosh to lead his men and eradicate the battery, which launched a large cavalry charge, overrunning the pieces and smashing into the supporting Iowa cavalry, which would take some time to rally and reform. In a brief hand-to-hand struggle, the Union forces would flee. An Iowa private would turn his horse and save a comrade, earning him the Medal of Honor in this flight. Now, despite popular belief, the Cherokee troops under Price did not participate in the charge, but did engage the Iowa troopers in the woods, mostly unmounted. Some of the Iowa dead were reported to have been scalped. Whether they were dead before that happened, and not simply wounded, is up to debate. Now, Osterhaus had set up a line on the far side of a field, ready for the Confederate assault. The old Texas Ranger had a choice to make, engage this enemy or continue on the planned rendezvous. He decided to round up his disorganized men 
and fight at Lee Town. He did so without sending word to Van Dorn, an unfortunate error for the Confederates. Artillery fire from Osterhaus's line had scattered the cavalry, including the Cherokee, who would play a little part in the rest of the battle. Hebert had been leading the column of infantry that was recalled to set up in the thick brush on the Confederate left. At this point, the 36th Illinois deployed along a fence line in the field to the front of the Union line as advanced skirmishers. They could hear the fighting that was occurring now at Elkhorn Tavern and were getting anxious. McCullough took a long time setting up his men and would ride forward alone in order to view the enemy for himself. Old Ben was not one for wearing uniforms, and on this day he was wearing black, which silhouetted him against the frozen landscape. Men of the 36 would unleash a volley on the lone horseman, killing him instantly. There was confusion for some time. The Confederates were unaware that their commander had been killed. A counter-strike from the 16th Arkansas recovered the body. In the meantime, the rest of the 36th Illinois would advance, trading fire with the Arkansas men. McIntosh would lead the 2nd Arkansas forward, but grow impatient and expose himself recklessly. The 36th would turn to face the new Confederate threat, hitting them with a volley that would also kill McIntosh, much in the same way as McCullough. McIntosh had been leading the 2nd Arkansas mounted rifles forward, but with the death of the 2nd in command, the 2nd and 16th would retire. These regiments would not move, waiting instead for instructions from Louis Herbert, who had taken command of the division, but, unfortunately, he was actually unaware of that fact. Following his original orders from McCullough, Herbert advanced into Morgan's Woods, on the edge of the Oberson Field, across the Leetown Road. Prior to riding off, the Texan had instructed an advance when firing could be heard. His brigade would engage men from Osterhaus and reinforcements from Jefferson C. Davis that would arrive at the behest of Curtis. An Indiana brigade would attempt to flank the rebels, but lose the momentum. At one point, the Confederates would appear from Morgan's Woods and assault a battery stationed on the edge of Oberson Field. William Black of the 35th Illinois would hammer away at the oncoming rebels with a Colt repeating rifle. This action would earn him the Medal of Honor. The other regiments in Osterhaus's command would come to the aid of their comrades and push the Arkansas men back into the thicket. Frustratingly, the remainder of the Confederate forces sat on the other side of the field, doing nothing. In the dense foliage, complicated with smoke from the firefight, Hebert would get lost. If he had known he was commanding the entire division, the idle troops on the other side of Oberson Field may have turned the tide at this point. Osterhaus could have been overwhelmed, and then Davis dealt with. It would not be until the Union forces were rounding up stragglers that Hebert would be captured by the enemy. Albert Pike would then take command of the Confederate forces, 
and start leading them away, back toward the detour road. Some of the rebels would not follow Pike, who, to be fair, was not an effective commander. Elkanah Greer would round up the remainder of the men and move to follow in a move around Big Mountain to Elkhorn Tavern. The exhausted Confederates would not play a major part for the rest of the battle. Some of the Cherokees actually went home, probably not really wanting to be part of Van Dorn's army in the first place. We usually have a false picture of the Cherokees wearing war bonnets and participating in a cavalry charge through an open field at the Foster Farm with the rest of the Confederate cavalry. We know this to be false. The Cherokees would have worn similar clothing to the rest of the Confederate forces, and they did not participate in the charge, attacking two companies of Iowa cavalry in the wooded area, as already mentioned. Now, we have gone over the entirety of the Leetown portion of the battlefield in the west. In the eastern portion lay Elkhorn Tavern, named so because of a pair of antlers mounted on the roof of the building. Elkhorn lay along the Telegraph Road, running roughly north-south, and the Huntsville Road, running to the east. The Ford Road, which McCullough's men were taking, lay a little to the south of the tavern. North, along the Telegraph Road, lay dense forest, known as Cross Timber Hollow. It was here that Eugene Carr would lead men of his division to make an initial stand, against the unknown number of Confederates. Van Dorn was surprised to make contact with the scattered artillery and infantry regiments. Missouri Confederate and State Guard troops were probably equally as surprised with making contact with the enemy. Tired from marching, their rations had only been for a limited time. In addition, they were now marching the steepest grade they had seen since the Boston Mountains. Carr would be directing artillery fire in the hollow, exposing himself recklessly, and for this he would receive the Medal of Honor. Soon his 2nd Brigade under Vanderveer would arrive, making his deployment of Dodge and Vanderveer on both sides of the Telegraph Road complete. Vanderveer would launch a spoiling attack at the Missouri troops, making contact, and in the process, mortally wounding William Slack, who would move forward with his 2nd Missouri to reconnoiter the Federals. Price would also be wounded at this time. For all of the rapid movements and focus on quick action, Vandorn paused at this point. Perhaps he was waiting for McCullough to join him, if you remember, he was unaware that the second half of his army was staying to engage the enemy at Leetown. It would not be until the afternoon that he received bad news that there would be no reinforcements from the Ford Road. Van Dorn would command the right flank and Price the left. It was not until 5 p.m. that the final assault at Elkhorn Tavern would begin. Van Dorn would personally direct the attack on the Union left, despite having received word that the other half of his army was essentially leaderless. 
and this is the big criticism of Van Doren, is that he should have left the attack at Elkhorn Tavern to Price and then moved to collect the shattered remnants of his other division. That would have been the wiser move, but instead he just sort of lets them march around aimlessly without really a centralized figure in command, and then he micromanages Price. Um, so that's sort of his big criticism for this battle. Missouri troops would advance in a hail of firing from Carr's division. The Union general had needed to refuse his lines on both sides to face the oncoming rebels. Dodge's men of the 4th Iowa had taken cover behind brush and logs. Price's Missouri State Guard having to advance across an open field to assault the position to disastrous effect. Eventually, the State Guard would threaten Dodge's flank, making his withdrawal necessary. Meanwhile, Vanderveer's men were falling back to an open field known as Ruddock's Field, where they made a new defensive line. Lieutenant Colonel Francis Heron of the 9th Iowa would remain at the position around the tavern to the very last, eventually being captured by the enemy. He would be the fourth individual to receive the Medal of Honor at Pea Ridge. Heron would be exchanged and continue to serve in the Trans-Mississippi for the remainder of the war. Artillerymen in blue had been able to spike the guns that could not be hauled off due to the casualties taken amongst the horses. A final volley had been unleashed directly at the charging enemy. The new position at Reddick's Field was reinforced by men from Alexander Asbeth, Curtis finally sending in his last division into the fray. Although it was almost completely dark, the Missouri troops attempted to break the Army of the Southwest with one final assault. Union troops repulsed the enemy, inflicting heavy casualties before a half-hearted counterattack. Curtis was satisfied he would finish off the rebels in the morning. Van Dorn would suffer from several logistical issues. Pike's portion of McCullough's division arrived, but Greer had stopped along the detour road to rest his men. Orders arrived too late from Van Dorn, telling these men not to resume their march until morning. As a result, this part of the army would be essentially useless the following day. The supply wagons had not been ordered to move by Van Dorn as well. This included the ammunition, which was running low for the entire army. After the battle, the commander of the Army of the West would attempt to deflect blame for this oversight, but overall, his rapid and brash moves would not pay off. Men had stopped to rummage through the discarded belongings of the Yankees at Elkhorn Tavern, searching for something to eat. The Army of the West was not in a good position to fight a second day. On the other hand, the Union forces would be able to bring the full four divisions to bear on the Confederate positions around Elkhorn Tavern. 
General Carter's slept soundly that evening. Confederates and Union surgeons would be busy into the night, any building on the field being turned into a hospital. In a good show of humanism, rebels and Federals alike would assist each other in aiding the wounded in Morgan's woods by starting fires to protect them from the cold Arkansas night. Curtis would make an interesting decision the following day, March 8th. Fran Siegel, who until this point had done relatively little besides reforming Osterhaus's men and rounding up stragglers, would be given the task of coordinating an artillery effort. It would be, up until that point, the most intense, sustained artillery bombardment in North America. Union guns would blaze away at the southern positions. So many rounds were expended, and so loud was the noise that the barrage could be heard many miles away. Siegel was actually the right man for this job. He directed fire of several of the batteries personally, and used any available high ground to his advantage. This would be one of the few times that artillery would be successful in softening an enemy position before an assault during the Civil War. Many of the Confederates were already breaking. The time had drawn for a final push. Curtis ordered all of his divisions to advance and close in on the enemy. Van Dorn showed a lack of communication and retreat. Albert Pike was left with some artillery and infantry in a final act of resistance before retiring. Some of the rebels fled up the Telegraph Road, while others fled east on the Huntsville Road, back through their hard-won ground. Marking the end of the battle, Curtis would ride up and down the lines, shouting victory. Siegel led a pursuit, but Curtis would consolidate his men back on the battlefield. Casualty numbers were approximately 1,300 for the Union and 2,500 for the Confederates. Curtis would be able to continue to move through Arkansas, only seeing light resistance. His Army of the Southwest would stop just short of Little Rock, having reached the extent of his supply lines. By that time, Halleck was in Washington, and Sheridan reassigned as well. So we can bring the Battle of Pea Ridge to an end. This would seal the fate of northern Arkansas and end a potential threat of an invasion into Missouri by Vint Dorn. It was shortly after the battle that the Mississippi General would receive a message from PGT Beauregard. It would read for him to gather his 20,000-man army and join a buildup of Confederate forces at Corinth for a strike at the Union Army under Grant. Van Dorn would not get there in time, though, as we will see in a couple of short weeks. Next episode, we will take a look at another major event that actually happens this week, 
for those of us who enjoy a good naval action, you are probably feeling a little bit ripped off. Fear not, though. We will give the Battle of Hampton Roads its proper due next week, as well as a check back in to see what Burnside is up to in North Carolina. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. And once again, support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. There will be that companion Patreon episode coming out with some photos from the modern-day battlefield. Uh, So that will go pretty nicely with this episode, I think. Get to see some of the places. Uh, It's a pretty nice battlefield, P-Ridge, so if you want to hear and see uh, about it, check out the Patreon. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.